Welcome to On the Other Side, where we talk crypto, culture, and society, and how crypto might shape society and change how real humans live their actual lives. Every week, we have on cool people from the crypto world to talk about what they're building and what the implications of that might be for real human beings. Before we hop into the show, I want to give a quick thank you to the first sponsor of On the Other Side, Rabbit Hole. Rabbit Hole is allowing users to earn crypto while they explore the weird world of Web3, guiding new users down the crypto rabbit hole in a curated way to make sure that people coming into the space are not only using positive sum protocols, but are also starting to build their on-chain resume as they do it. So the longer-term vision for Rabbit Hole is building essentially the open credentialing system for Web3. To build that credentialing system, it's important that they're decentralized. And so the Pathfinder program is paving the way for decentralizing Rabbit Hole and creating an open system built by the community, not by a single team. If you're interested in learning more about Rabbit Hole, check out Rabbit Hole at rabbithole.gg. You can also check them out on Twitter, rabbithole underscore gg. And if you're interested in learning more about the Pathfinder program, which is the first step to the Rabbit Hole DAO, you can check it out at rabbithole.gg slash pathfinder. All right, let's hop into the show. I am here with David Ehrlichman, who wrote Impact Networks, which is my current obsession because I think networks and DAOs are like super related. We'll dive into all of that. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Chase. I cannot wait to talk about the book and some of the concepts around networks and all the things that you've been thinking about. Before we dive into that, do you want to give a little bit of background on you, where Impact Networks came to be, and then maybe how that relates to the crypto space and the angle that you're approaching the crypto space from? Yeah, for sure. Happy to give a little background. It's a bit of a winding journey. It started maybe 15 years ago or so. And when I was a lot younger, just figuring out what I wanted to do in life, one of my first jobs was working at a big corporation that was building really cool stuff. But all the work I was doing ultimately just you know, made more money for the C-suite or more money for the shareholders. And it was through that experience that I, I realized once and for all that I couldn't spend my life just working to make money. And I definitely couldn't spend my life just working to make other people money. So my work had to have you know, a purpose, some kind of impact. Uh, the question was how. So I tried working at a nonprofit and this organization was doing really great work and helping people without shelter get trained, find jobs in the culinary industry. Truly, they were making a huge difference in the lives of these people who participated in the program, but they were working within this massive broken system. So they were changing people's lives and dealing with the symptoms of this broken system, but not affecting the system itself. So that got me really curious about how we could create change at a systemic level. And I decided to work for a social impact consulting firm called Monitor Institute to see what approaches they were trying and what approaches were emerging in the space. And it was there that I really discovered how some groups were making a bigger impact, not by scaling up their organization, but really by scaling out through connections. Rather than building a bigger and bigger organization, they were really building a network uh, and not a social network, but a network for purpose. Some organizations were open sourcing their IP and their programs so that they could be provided through other groups around the country under their own brand. Uh, So even though the original organization didn't get the credit, they were really expanding their impact in ways that they couldn't do alone. And they were putting their mission and their purpose at the center of their focus rather than growing their own organization or 
you know, increasing their own status. And in other cases, I also learned about a few more formal networks that were forming to connect many different organizations around shared goals. And these networks were even staffed to facilitate coordination between the different organizations, to support shared learning, to move towards collaborative action, and to affect the system in larger ways that any organization couldn't do alone. And this type of work is what really blew my mind and, and inspired me to focus on what it could mean to build networks for purpose, to work across organizations, across sectors, to do things that we can't do alone as a single individual or as a single organization. And so that led me to then work in Fresno, California as a network coordinator for a collection of organizational leaders across all sectors working to revitalize their city so that superintendent and leaders of nonprofits and also leaders of private organizations and people in healthcare and in education and the county librarian coming together and figuring out what they can do together they can't do alone, how can they support each other's work, and how can we create you know, just enough structure, not too much, but just enough structure to support their ability to continue to connect, share learnings, and actually take action together over time. So that led me to Santa Cruz then, building another network, this one to steward half a million acres of land from south of San Francisco, west of San Jose, the Santa Cruz Mountains region. How do you care for a really large landscape? There's no single group that can do it alone because the land is owned and managed by this you know, patchwork quilt of different groups. And so you have to bring together the, the government agencies and the academic institutions and the timber companies and the tribal groups and the nonprofits all to figure out you know, what, what do we care about that we share? And there is a lot. And there's also a lot of things they disagree about and that's okay. And really bringing that to the surface and then finding those opportunities to you know, immediately support each other's work. There are a number of ways to coordinate those actions. And then what are the things that they could do together to affect the whole system? And you know, it was through this work that I discovered my own purpose statement, which is to catalyze others to make their greatest contribution. And I really think that's what networks for purpose or impact networks can do. So you know, that led me to co-found Converge and Converge is a network of people who support impact networks. And you know, over the last 10 years, I've been really fortunate to support and catalyze dozens of different impact networks. Some examples to increase access to science, networks to improve economic mobility across New York City, to protect migrant rights across borders in Central America, increasing access to funding for small farmers in Africa, connecting the different sites and health disciplines of the UCSF health system to advance whole patient care. And you know, by working with all these different networks, I was able to see what worked across contexts and across geographies. And even though the whys were really different and the whats were really different, the aims and the scopes were really different between these different efforts. There was actually a lot that was similar in terms of how they began, what the key ingredients were, what type of leadership was required, really different type of leadership than we see in hierarchical environments to build community, to foster self-organization, to create these decentralized vehicles for change. And so that led me to write this book, uh, to share what I'd learned, and to also share the stories of these network leaders, people I'd worked with and others that I've come into contact with, and also to bring together what, what others have been doing in this space and in related fields like community building and network science and systems thinking and 
complexity science. And so while I was busy writing, uh, Zach, a longtime colleague of mine and co-founder of Converge with me, he found his way into the Web3 space through Yearn first, and then starting Coordinate. Your listeners might know about Coordinate. It provides a way for DAOs and any group really to reward contributions and distribute and allocate resources in a decentralized way. And so over the last year, as I watched what was happening with DAOs, it got me really excited. We know a lot about how to build networks and create community. And now we have new processes and tools that are being created to allow for coordination to happen asynchronously at really large scales. And as I finished the book and, and started to think about where I wanted to focus more of my time next, I really, Web3 is it. What's happening here is I think the most significant leap the planet has ever seen in terms of our ability to work together across organizations, regions, and even nations. And uh, at the moment, I'm just trying to figure out where I can best contribute to this movement. Yeah, I think it's really cool because you have almost been studying a lot of the key mechanisms, not just studying, but also practicing and and working to implement a lot of the key mechanisms that I think are behind DAOs, just without the context of DAOs and this like economic layer that's super scalable that tokens and crypto provide, which I think is so interesting. And I think that's what I love most about this book is when you talk about things like the key ingredients for these decentralized networks that are not super hierarchical and the need to build community and foster self-organization. To me, those are all of the things that DAOs uniquely do well. And so I love that you have a massive amount of practical experience building these things and that you've synthesized it because I think so much of that is like really the key foundation for what we need to know about building DAOs so that we don't make these mistakes and have to, you know, relearn all of these different things and sort of reinvent the wheel. I think maybe a good place to start would be like how you define a network, because I think that will help ground people in like the the sort of analogy between networks and DAOs. You sort of alluded to it, but how would you define a network at its core? I'm a network can mean many things. A network is simply a collection of relationships that are connected together in some way. And so there can be biological networks like the networks of neurons in our brains. There are technological networks like the internet. There are the networks beneath our feet when we walk in a forest, the the mycelial networks that connect trees and other plants together to share resources and nutrients and minerals. And then there are social networks, the networks of connections that we have. And networks that intentionally connect people and organizations for a specific purpose, that's how I define impact networks. So it takes the next step from a social network, which often form organically through the people you meet. And it says we can actually create networks, not just for connection, but also for shared learning and also for collaborative action. And we can also connect multiple networks together as part of a larger movement just the structure that a lot of social movements have. I like that definition. And I love the idea also that a lot of these networks, you sort of said this earlier, can't necessarily coordinate under like one single group. It really is a multi-stakeholder alignment for a shared mission or vision, which I think is really cool because I think that's very much in line with DAOs. When you think about these key ingredients, can you break those down a little bit? What are the key ingredients to a network or an impact network specifically? Sure. Yeah. There's kind of five core activities that really show up time and time again. They 
they have a purpose. Uh, they have a shared purpose that brings people together that really inspires people to join. It's the reason for the network's being. And often they also have shared principles, which is not just shared values, it's shared values, but how are we going to put them into action? So what are the things that we want to hold ourselves accountable to that we find important? So if your value is equity related or improving diversity and inclusion, you know, how are you actually going to put that into practice and how can we hold ourselves and each other accountable to that? So purpose and principles are really at the center. Then there's the people, of course, you know, who are the people who need to be involved? Sometimes they're individuals, sometimes they're organizations and networks can be open. Uh, anybody can join They're really open and collaborative. It's self-selecting, or they can be closed where you know, there are specific criteria. Sometimes they're invite only. And you know, that might feel kind of exclusionary, but, but having smaller, more intimate conversations can make a huge difference. And sometimes if a network is totally open, it kind of negates the possible conversations that could ha happen among a smaller, more focused group. So it's really important to consider bringing together diverse groups from the very beginning, because whatever patterns get created early on, whether consciously or subconsciously, they're likely to persist over time. And there is this tension between participation and pace. Sometimes it makes sense to have a smaller group. You can have more intimate conversations and go a little bit faster and then over time expand. So there's the people, the purpose and principles, then the people, and then relationships. And really trust and networks are really only as strong as the connections that hold them together. Networks are all about connections, particularly when it comes to networks for purpose. Relationships of trust are absolutely essential. It's what makes it all work. You know, trust is what allows people to come together and start to work together, even when they disagree. And even when the future is unclear, because there's inevitably going to be miscommunications We're we're going to have disagreements. But can we hold that tension long enough till we can find you know, the slice of common ground where we do agree and we can work together? You know, it's not trust so that we like each other uh, or trust so that we agree each other. You know, conflict is really important. It can be a great thing when it's generative. It's trust for action, trust to get things done. So relationships. And fourth, coordination. So how do we figure out what's happening across the network? How do we bring information in from the larger system and, and make sense of it together? And how do we then share that information back out from the conversations that we're having and the things that we're learning? How can we support each other's existing work? Look at the things that are already happening and not reinvent the wheel, but really build on the work that people are already doing and connect those dots in a thoughtful and strategic way. So coordination. And then last, collaboration. What are the things we can do together that we can only do together that we can't do alone? Looking at the entire system, bringing our different puzzle pieces together, making collective sense of what's happening. When we're engaged in really big, complex issues, there's really no single person who can hold it all in their brain. And people are focused on different aspects of this larger problem or the larger system. So bringing them together through shared sense-making, through understanding of the past, the present, the future states of the system, you know, finding leverage points places where a small shift in one thing will create big changes throughout everything. And then 
organizing together and, and forming teams and creating opportunities to work together that didn't previously happen. So collaboration. So those are really the five kind of key ingredients. And then on top of that, you add an enabling infrastructure, right? Just enough structure, as I said before, but to support the work, but not too much to kind of stifle creativity and emergence and self-organization. So just enough structure is things like, you know, mechanisms for forming teams or what what's our processes for making decisions? How are we going to track our progress and make sense of that? And how are we going to collect and share resources? So I think those are really the key ingredients. And then the one more thing I would add is leadership. And we'll probably get into this more. But I really believe that leadership always matters. We often hope that these types of collectives and collaborative efforts and networks will just spontaneously self-organize. And sometimes they do, but usually that's pretty rare. And usually that only goes so far. Uh, at kind of the core of so many of these efforts, there are leaders, there are individuals who are taking on a greater level of responsibility for stewarding the effort. And it's just a different type of leadership than we see in hierarchical environments. It's more facilitative leadership. To use a term from Robert Greenleaf, it's steward leadership and servant leadership. Peter Block has called it uh, stewardship. And leadership in this context, I call network leadership. You might call it other things. Uh, in some cases, people call them community managers. But these individuals are critical for creating and cultivating the conditions for people to continue to connect, to learn, to take action together and to self-organize and really creating opportunities for other people to step into leadership. It's a very kind of often behind the scenes, like humble type of leadership that uh, is about how can we distribute decision-making, distribute leadership and create more opportunities. It's not telling people what to do or controlling what's happening, but it's allowing them and supporting people to do what they want to do and what they feel is important. I love the idea of having just enough structure. I know Matthew Chaim has sort of called it like creating containers for collective creation, which I think is really interesting. And I think in the context of leadership, part of me wonders, is the job of a leader to really just create that space? Like, is that really what leaders should be optimizing for is how do you create containers for people to essentially collectively create value? I think that's a huge part of it. I think a often overlooked but really key part of this work is how do you create that space, bring people into that space, invite them into co-creation. And you're not inviting them into your thing. You're really inviting them into, you know, collective sense making and exploration of what this could become. And then the the intentional design and facilitation of what happens in those spaces goes a long way towards what comes out of it. And in terms of related to the just enough structure piece, that's how I think of design too. Designing these gatherings, what is the just enough design that we can have in terms of the right framing questions, in terms of you know, bringing groups together in different ways to allow for small, intimate conversations, in terms of creating spaces where people can form deeper relationships and and have different types of conversations with different people that they wouldn't have otherwise. So designing these types of uh, convenings and then facilitating them in a really fluid and, and emergent way that you're open to going where the energy of the group is, is a big part of this work. I think also network leaders, they, you know, they're constantly looking for ways to foster self-organization among the group. They're constantly looking for the people who are willing and, and excited about stepping into something and supporting that 
leadership of that person to, to lead a team or to, to facilitate a conversation or whatever it might be, or to connect with new communities and bring more people into the network. They're really holding the mindset also of, of what it means to work in this way, that emergence is okay. And we, we don't need to plan everything out in advance, right? We can cross the river by feeling for stones. We can move forward kind of step by step and, and holding that mindset uh, of what it means to work in this way and to, to work through connections as opposed to through control. Uh, they're also a big part of it, I think, is, is holding tensions as they arise. Because in this work, you know, it's so fluid, so emergent. There's, there's always going to be these different tensions. It's not black or white, you know, either or. There's very rarely going to be one right thing to do. Uh, so things like, you know, how do we balance the need to take action and, and try to get quick wins and get things done, but also take the time to build relationships? You know, I mentioned attention before, participation and pace. We want to include many different people. We want this thing to grow, but we also want to have, you know, smaller, more intimate conversations that can move things forward. Holding both divergence and convergence, you know, we, we need to, to bring the different perspectives that people have to bear. The only way that we're going to know how we agree is to see all the ways that we disagree. And then we'll find some places where there is overlap. And through that, that's that's where emergence and something new is created. So holding these these different tensions and really embodying the mindset, often the, the network's culture uh, starts there with how that leader or that group of, of individuals who help start these types of networks hold hold the energy of the space. How do they do that well? Like what what are the sort of tactics for doing that really well? Because it feels like, I mean, <laughs> everything you say, I'm like, okay, replace networks with DAOs and this is just so applicable yep. where DAOs struggle with pace versus participation and they struggle with disagreement versus finding ways that people agree. And governance is obviously a big part of this in that regard. But I'm curious how leaders and networks more broadly, like participants in networks, have successfully held those tensions and held space for them. Yeah. Well, I do want to agree with you. I think you can replace all this with DAOs. And you know, if you take the A out of DAOs, it's decentralized organizing, which is what this is all about. DAOs just also bring another layer of you know coordination tools to bear that that can do really interesting things. But it's it's all people, you know, and it's all building community and it's all about how how we can work together to do things together we can't do alone. And this is you know, this has been happening for generations through social movements and community organizing and, and so forth. And so there are lessons that we can draw on just the way that, that people work together when there's not sort of a, a power hierarchy that, that tells you exactly what role you're supposed to be in and exactly who you're supposed to talk to, but really in these more open and connected ways. So yes to that, absolutely. And how can people work in this way? I think it's just practice because, you know, so many of us, at least speaking for myself, socialized in you know really hierarchical ways of doing things from the schools that you attended and the ways that the schools operate early jobs you know, most of my all of my early jobs really were in hierarchical environments there was always a boss and someone to to pass instructions down and you had a very specific role to play and you were supposed to stay in that role and so it can take time to to switch into this this other way of working. And I think it just takes practice. And you know, ultimately, it's, it's really a return to how we, I think, want to work and want to connect with each other, because it's how we just naturally connect with each other in our lives and in, in, in our social networks. Um, 
in our communities. It's, it's putting relationships first and putting purpose first. So it's really kind of unlearning more than anything else of what it is to, to be in connection with other people and to work in these more open and emergent ways. And then I think it's just practice and reminding yourself of these different tensions that are going to arise. And I often find it's helpful to name those as because they will come up in conversation. Another tension is self-interest and shared interest. It's, it's so important that people are involved in these efforts in networks and DAOs, and they get something out of it that serves their personal self-interest. And we have to honor that. And we can also think about what we're trying to do together and what the shared interest is. Both of those conversations are important, right? Planning and emergence. These are both important. A lot of people have this drive to plan, to figure out what's going to come next, to create tasks and accountability measures, to, to organize different groups into to getting the work done. But we also have to really be emergent because we're constantly going to be learning and we need to be able to shift paths. And so one isn't necessarily better than the other. We have to hold both of these perspectives. And so as, as these come up, I think naming those, being aware of it, uh, recognizing that there's this is not black and white, right? We're living in this um, more fluid space. Uh, and that tension really creates the liveness and it creates learning. It creates evolution to be able to, to sit with those different tensions. Um, so I would say just, just get into it, start working this way, recognize that you might have the pull of uh, hierarchical ways just based on your previous experiences that come up from time to time, but noticing those and working through that in connection and in community with others who are also trying to work in this way. I think this emphasis on connection is really interesting. Can you talk more about why that's such a core aspect of these networks? Because I think in DAOs, we tend to not put connection among members of DAOs as like first and foremost, which I think is fundamentally probably flawed the way that we're approaching it right now. So can you talk more about this connection piece in networks? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as as I said, a network is any collection of things that are connected through relationships. So the relationships are what make networks work. And it's what what makes communities work? The connections that we have with one another, the relationships. It does a few things that are really important. It, it creates relationships and trust, particularly create cohesion while the networks or the DAOs, more formal structures and processes are being formed. You know, in the early days where it's really fluid and emergent, uh, that trust and that cohesion keeps us together, even when there are disagreements. And over time, as we're figuring out, you know, how we're going to make decisions about certain things, what governance looks like, we don't have these structures yet at the beginning, we're just feeling our way into it. So the relationships are going to hold people together in the meantime, and it can help people be more comfortable with emergence and be more willing to share information and, and take risks. It's, it's really the glue that keeps the network together as participants develop additional structures for how they want to work together. You know, it also... Trust in relationships can increase the network's collective intelligence and you know, avoid the pitfalls of conformism and, and groupthink. Together, we are capable of discernment that's greater than any individual, but it, it requires that we're open in two different ways. We're open to sharing our honest perspectives, which can often be scary, some vulnerability there openness to sharing what you really think, but then also on the other side, openness to, to hearing a different perspective that might disagree with your own. And as, as I said earlier, you know, inevitably there are going to be disagreements. That's, that's what this is all about. Bringing our different divergent opinions, perspectives together to, to create something new. Also, there are inevitably going to be miscommunications. So how can we, you know, have enough of a buffer 
uh, relationship to then be able to follow back up with that person to dig deeper rather than just, you know, turn away uh, and end it there. And so many, it's really why so many of these efforts ultimately fail. They, they don't have that, that foundation of relationships to, to fall back on when, when things get tough or when there's disagreements. So trust, I think is, for me, it's the most important uh, ingredient in this work. And it's, it's worthwhile to take the time to build relationships. It's really, I think, the greatest investment you can make, you know, return on relationships. I love the idea of return on relationships. I know you also dive in a little bit in the book into like how networks can build that trust. Can you talk more about those mechanisms and the components that can like make up trust? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, some of the key components of trust, one I just mentioned, openness and that two-sided part of openness. Reliability, you know, are you going to show up, stick around and, and follow through? Are you going to do what you said you're going to do? You know, reliability is a key part of this. Care, the care of each other, the care of, you know, uh, not creating harm for one another, for uh, recognizing that some people have been historically marginalized and oppressed and how can we create spaces that, that allow for the diversity and, and the beauty that people bring and appreciation for those, those different perspectives, different ways of being, different practices. The ways that people can can build trust, leaders and and really anybody in Network or DAO can, can play the role of weaving, of actively weaving people together, of actively connecting people together who might benefit from from a conversation or from an interaction you know this is it's making introductions it's it's understanding what people are doing and and finding those places where people might be curious about a similar topic or working on a similar thing and actually not just introducing them together but creating the context for the conversation um and and also leaders can do uh, important work connecting directly with participants of uh, a DAO or of a network to understand, you know, what their needs are, what they're curious about, what they're interested in. And, you know, that directly connecting with participants, taking the time to, to understand what people are up to and, and what they want to be doing in the effort can then create more opportunities for, for you to connect them with other people and to, and to loop them in and to onboard them into the effort in different ways. Um, also, I think it's just taking the time to, to have relationships, to have conversations you haven't had with people you haven't had them with before, different types of conversations, sometimes, you know, not talking about work or the thing or the product, but talking about, you know, yourself and sharing your story. And, and you know, why do you do this work? Not just what is the work, but why do you do this work? What do you care about underneath that? You know, what's kind of the the underlying humanity behind the keyboard or behind the work that you're doing, taking the time to, to get to know each other in that way. And and so often, one of the reasons I really love and appreciate convenings, and especially in-person convenings, I, I know it's hard now and I miss them, but is because there is that unstructured time, that in-between time where there is no agenda and you know we're not on a computer and we're just hanging out and we're cooking and we're cleaning and we're you know, just having real normal conversations about random different things. That that unstructured time is one of the most hilarious and most intimate moments I've ever seen happen in these spaces. And that creates something different. When you've had those types of interactions with someone, uh, it just shifts the nature of the relationship and it shifts the nature of your work together. And it, I think it makes it a lot more fun and an enjoyable place to be. 
Yeah, it's downtime where like real human to human connection happens. And I think this is definitely an interesting challenge with not just async work, but work that is digital in general. This is why I think DAOs probably need to have retreats because you really do need that time to connect with people. Or I guess we need to start creating that space, which I think is a little bit more challenging. Are there networks, impact networks that you've worked with that have been fully digital or had like anonymous aspects to them? Yeah, sometimes it's just necessary when the networks are distributed across the world, but we still have convenings. We still create spaces where the full network or as many people as possible come together at the same time to experience the whole system and to experience each other and make connections and and also plan out the work in kind of the next short-term stage. So they always have convenings. That's something that just keeps coming up over and over again. This active convening is really sacred and it's really important. And I think the anonymity is fine. I don't I don't think there's any problem there because people can be anonymous but still share important parts about themselves, about why they care about this work. They don't need to reveal personal identifying details in order to do that, in order to have real conversations. So I don't see any problem with, with the anonymity piece, to be honest. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's it's really about being able to connect with other people doesn't mean you need to know everything about them. Right. <laughs> and exactly. usually you don't know everything about them. So, you know, they're a human and that's probably all, that's all right. you you'll, need to know. But you'll know everything there is to know about another person. So, you know, if we if we set aside <laughs> your name and your you know hometown, all that stuff, it's fine. We can still explore some really interesting questions, even just things like, you know, what's a book that had a big influence on you, right? What's what's somebody that you would love to talk to right now, living or dead? You can you can create questions that explore a different size of, of the person and, and of what they're interested in without giving away personal details. Yeah, I think asking those types of questions that almost foster the sense of vulnerability and understanding and connection is is really important. I'm curious how you think about the dynamic between human to human connection and a broader sense of community. I think they play into one another. It's sort of fractal. Like when we create human human connections and and we do that over and over again, that's what creates community. A community is a place where there's something shared among us. There are, there are relationships among us. We have you know, that shared purpose that brings us together, a shared sense of purpose, or sometimes it's a shared sense of place or, or a sense of belonging. And it's, you know, a community without connections, I don't think is really a community at all. So I think they're also one and the same. Yeah, I think that sense of belonging is really interesting. And something that I've thought a lot about in the context of DAOs is the feeling of ownership. Because it feels like fundamentally that is one of the sort of key aspects of DAOs that is unique is people really can own part of the network in a super tangible and economic sense. And so it feels to me like the feeling of ownership almost helps promote self-organizing, like what you talk about in the book. I think human connection also plays a role in that. But can you talk a little bit about sort of like a, your thoughts on ownership and the feeling of ownership, but B, this like self-organizing piece? Yeah, I think, you know, the ownership piece, it's a great point. And it's why, as I alluded to earlier, you're not inviting people into your thing and and you can't control networks. They're more like a garden, like you're, you're cultivating this ecosystem that everybody has ownership in and everybody plays a role in. 
and everybody can be a leader in. You know, anybody can step into leadership in different ways. Anybody can advance a certain type of conversation. Anybody can advance a proposal to do a certain type of work. They can step into the work that they really want to do. And that's kind of the beauty of this. So it's inviting people into co-creation. Well, when people feel like they can play a role in, in how something evolves, then they're a lot more likely to, to want to step in and to see how they can contribute. When you're working in hierarchical environments, sometimes it doesn't feel like you really can play a role in shaping the direction of, of the thing. You're just, you know, a cog in a machine. But in these types of communities and networks and DAOs, self-organization happens because people believe, in, and rightfully so, that they, they can shape its direction, that they can step up into uh, leadership for the things that they want to lead, that they can partner on the things that they they want to engage on, that they can follow and track all the other things that are happening that they just want to keep be you know, keep tabs on. Uh, so when people feel like they have a, a role to play in shaping its direction, that, that allows for self-organization to happen in a different way. I have sort of a tactical follow-up to that, which is I really liked this chart that you had in the book, which was like a hierarchical mindset and the network mindset. And one of the most interesting things was tasks were part of this like hierarchical mindset where I think relationships were sort of the the network version of tasks. Can you talk more? Let me make sure that that was right in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. Page 39, I have it bookmarked because, nice. <laughs> so, because I thought it was really interesting. So it was like task-oriented is sort of the hierarchical mindset, but then you have relationship-oriented is the network mindset. What I've seen so far in DAOs is bounties and these things that are sort of task-oriented to onboard people. But this concept of replacing that with relationship-oriented, almost like organizing units of labor, I thought was really interesting, is the main reason for that basically that in a network, you want work to be done emerging from relationships and sort of like assessing the need rather than a top-down hierarchical structure asserting tasks that need to be done. Right, like how exactly. Do you think about that? There's not exactly. And it's not to say that, you know, they're mutually exclusive. Both have both, right? Hierarchies have informal networks just naturally. And, and networks have tasks, you know, people plan out the work that they want to do together. And so it's back to that tension of taking action and, and building relationship. And both are important, but networks, you know, again, it's all about connections. And so it often starts with the connection first and out of that comes then the exploration of what we can do together. And out of that comes, you know, collective, uh, planning of, of how we want to do it. So the tasks kind of emerge from the relationships and the conversations and and the sense making the exploration that that we do together as opposed to you know somebody a boss or somebody higher on the hierarchy using tasks as a way to to organize the structure um that the structure is based on the tasks and so people are fit into very specific seats to do very specific roles you know the tasks are what is driving that. If you flip it around, creating connection, the tasks are going to sort of emerge from the bottom up uh, out of what's wanting to emerge. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. And it feels like emergence, I love your point because you say this in the book, emergence is the key factor that makes a lot of these things much more interesting because mm -hmm. you can't have hierarchical systems with 
complexity larger than what the hierarchy can basically plan, which is why mm-hmm. like central planning of economies doesn't work well because mm-hmm. you only have a very small group of people allocating resources versus having a massive network making decisions at a sort of relational level. And then out of that emerging this like amazing allocation of resources, which I think is a really cool framing of networks and DAOs more broadly. Do you think that's a fair comparison to make? Right. I mean, at, at certain scales of complexity, we can't plan the future. We don't know exactly what's going to happen next. And to to try to do so is foolish. But what we can do is uh, know possibly the next most important thing to do and then learn from that experience and then uh, continue to to you know, shift and, and evolve. It's kind of the difference between a map uh, and a compass. You know, a map is only helpful if somebody's walked the terrain before and they have a really good idea of what's coming up next. But when you're entering an uncertain future, there is no map. Nobody's experienced this before. But what you can have is a compass that orients you in, in a direction. And as you, you know, encounter mountains and obstacles and boulders and rivers, you can shift your strategy. You can figure out in that moment, what's needed, you know, working with the people around you. So you're keeping, you know, a shared orientation of where you hope to go, but but you have to stay emergent to, to what's coming up next because nobody's traveled the path before. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. And I love that as sort of the, the closing thought for how we can think about some of these things. Before we wrap up, I have a segment at the end of the show that is, what is your favorite thing in your wallet? But I know that you're new to crypto, so I don't know mm-hmm. how much you have in your wallet or how much you've dove into the weird degen shit that's going on. So I guess the the question would be like, what have you been playing around with lately, if anything? And do you have a favorite thing in your wallet? Sure. Yeah, I've been a little bit too degen for my own good, to be honest. And I am really, I really like uh, some of the projects and the things that I've gotten into. But I will actually say that my the favorite thing in my wallet is just the addresses of of my family members and my friends and uh, other people I'm in community with because it really speaks to this possibility of you know, connecting and sharing resources directly with them without having to go through a third party. You know, sharing resources with them without having to go through PayPal or uh, starting an organization together and creating shared ownership of a trust together, which is something that I think has been really lacking with networks. There hasn't, the networks that I've worked with in the social impact space, there hasn't been a, a great legal structure that that supports what these networks do and that reflects how they work. And so, you know, being able to create organizations with shared resources and opens up just an entirely new way of organizing that is absolutely essential for the future. This is why I love multi-sigs. I'm big on, I will not give it up, like having multi-sigs <laughs> with friends because I think it's so cool to be able to share those resources. And I think mm-hmm. DAOs tap into something very similar, which is how do you share resources with a mission-aligned community? And I think that is going to be one of the coolest things that comes out of this space over the next couple of years. So um, mm-hmm. totally agreed on that. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you? Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me on Twitter. I'm trying to post more and more uh, at D-A-V Ehrlichman, Dave Ehrlichman. Last name is E-H-R-L-I-C-H-M-A-N. I also post a lot on LinkedIn. You can just find me there with my name. And then you can sign up for a newsletter at converge.net. That's my network that I support. So at converge.net, you can sign up for email. And there's a bunch of links to the book there, converge.net slash book, as well as a lot of free tools and facilitation guides. And a lot of the things I reference, we offer there for free. We open source it with a Creative Commons license. So go use it. 
Amazing. I'll also link the book, how you can order it in the podcast notes, because this has been among my favorites for DAOs. And I have also seen it in a couple of DAO reading lists very recently. So I'm super excited for people to get their hands on it. But yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was so awesome to chat. Yeah, it's great to be here. And as anybody does dig into the book, I'd love to hear your feedback. Happy to talk about it. You know, hit me up on Twitter is probably the best place. I'd love to go deeper with y'all. Amazing. Thank you. All right, thanks. If you like what you heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast. I always forget to do this for podcasts I like, but it's actually super useful. Also, if anything resonated with you or if you want to continue the conversation, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Chaser Chapman. I absolutely love talking about these things. Thanks again for listening.